0: Namotasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namotasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namotasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Udhamdhammam So it's uh, lovely to see you all here this evening. I'm not sure whether it's Linda's discussion group or whether people have come for some other reason. Whatever your reason anyway, you're very welcome. And also these questions are very welcome. There's quite an extensive uh, selection. And I need to also speak about the current stanza in the Mahamangala Sutta that we've been discussing for the last Few months, and usually I forget, but tonight I remembered, and I think I'll start with that, and then move on to these questions and see how we do. So for those of you that haven't been coming regularly, um, this discourse, the uh, discourse on great blessings or highest blessings, the Mahamangala Sutta, given by the Buddha, is one of the best known of um, the sutras he gave, and goes through a, a graduated Uh, teaching of things that are really significant, things that we really need to pay attention to in our life. And although we might, as I said, have aspirations for great things and and be inspired by lofty teachings and look forward to wonderful realizations of of freedom and emptiness and boundless love and light, uh, the reality is that we have to live with each other and that doesn't always help us emit love and light and our bodies get old and that doesn't exactly make us feel wonderful all the time so there are difficulties in life and so the Buddha gave a a whole teaching a skillful means for taking on all of our lives taking on all aspects of our lives and so this teaching, the Mahamangara Sutra, is one of the discourses he gave and we've been going through these verses for the last, as I said, the last few months So, the sense we're up to at the moment says steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind, and heedfulness in all things that arise, these are the highest blessings. So, uh, as I was saying, the encouragement throughout the Buddha's teaching is to see that it encompasses all aspects of our lives, not to allow ourselves to see spiritual life as something separate from the rest of our lives. One of the most consistent themes that he taught about was uh, the need for cultivation of mindfulness. Here in the third line of this stanza he talks about heedfulness, apamado is the word, apamado chitamesu, apamado chitamesu, heedfulness in in all things that arise, heedfulness in everything right across the board. Because it is quite easy if we're not uh, well trained or if we're not aware of the difficulties for us to compartmentalize our lives and and to to split things off and to say this is spiritual and this is not spiritual or this is worth being mindful of and this is not worth being mindful of. Like when we're suffering we tend to, we tend to remember oh I've got to be mindful of suffering but one of the reasons why we keep getting lost in our suffering is because we allow ourselves to get lost in in the the, uh, the pleasure, mm. the pleasurable aspects of life, which I hope you all have many, good company, good food, mm. good mind states—all the things that make us feel good—and mm. the pleasure that arises in association with these wholesome states is easy to get lost in. And uh, sometimes we we have a feeling that. If we are mindful of pleasure, it's going to spoil the pleasure. I've often heard this this comment at times. Being mindful all the time is rather boring. Well, it's true if we're trying to be mindful. If we're trying to be mindful from some once removed position, looking at ourselves, am I being mindful enough? That's, That's not actually mindfulness. Mindfulness is Mindfulness is a, is a quality of careful attention, that that watchfulness that that we pay to something we really value. I think one of the best images is is like you're holding a young child, you know, a child that's too small to walk and stand up and so on something. You're holding this child. You're careful. You're mindful. You're attentive. You're sensitive. All of these qualities. You're paying attention. What are the child's needs? What can I do? Am I holding too tight? Am I holding too loose? And it's a feeling relationship. It's not a, what did the book say I should do now? But it's a sensitivity to the present moment. And so and what's encouraged throughout is, is a cultivation of this watchfulness, this heedfulness in everything that arises. Not just the times we're, when we're having a bad time, but also when we're having a good time to be really with the good times, to be really allowing ourselves to feel the goodness, to feel the joy, to feel the happiness, but not to get lost in it. And if we don't get lost in the good times, well then there's a chance that we're not going to get so lost in the not so good times. And there are things that uh, that support this not getting lost, like in this verse it says, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind. This is this is really important. The... the um, the precept, the fifth precept of avoiding intoxicants. Somebody rang me the other day, uh, very concerned because um, they wanted to live a good Buddhist life and, and they'd read some interpretation of the, the precepts that says that they that caffeine uh, is uh, breaking, the, taking caffeine breaks the fifth precept. Well, that basically means Buddhism is not going to work in England. You know, it's just not. You know, how can you give up tea? So it's just not possible. Well, this is not. What is clearly intended with the um, Surah Meraya precept, the fifth precept, is intoxicants that dull the mind. Now, I don't think tea dulls the mind. I think quite the opposite. Actually, tea makes the mind feel good. So, not that we need to be feeding on caffeine, but this is talking about drugs that actually cause heedlessness, cause us to lose consciousness, lose awareness. And so... Alcohol um, and all the other recreation drugs that are around these days are these things that give us a distorted view, a distorted perception. At the time, we might think that it's a heightened perception. Most of us have probably tried a few things here and there to see what's involved and and uh, have some experience. And at the time, it feels wonderful. And I, I think I probably told you that time uh, many, many, many years ago, and before I was anything like this, and I. Been off for a, a fun weekend, and and I composed this. I wrote this script of, uh, of some profound thoughts that that came to me at the time. And and this friend of mine, he read them, and he was so impressed as well with these amazing thoughts. And we were in a state of altered consciousness at the time, and, and um, as a result of what's called substance abuse these days. And uh, but anyway, the next morning when I when I read this. <laughs> it was absolute rubbish. <laughs> was absolute, well, which one was the same me? Now, you know, of course, one school of thought says well, obviously, you know, you've closed down, you've got lost again, you know, you should take some more. Well, interesting as those experiments can be, uh, in the long run, they don't really help, and they can, in fact, create a lot of, dis- uh, lot of uh, obstructions. I mean, but, Way back in the 70s when Ajahn Chah was encountering the first Western monks and nuns and Western men and women as they were coming into the monastery, falling into the monastery in various states of disintegration. And anyway, somebody asked him once about this experience of taking hallucinogenic drugs and what was the experience? You know, was it real? You know, you have this experience, you feel this, you feel that, one with everything and see the truth of emptiness and boundless love and and Ajahn Chah listened to all this and he said, well, he said, the experience was real, but you stole it. And I a very wise and helpful appreciation of the layer. It's not dismissing the experience. The experience is real. But the relationship that somebody taking toxicants has with the experience is not a real relationship. It's not a sustainable relationship. And so to say that we stole it is in a way of put it in its right place. And, uh, to see that it's not its not necessarily going to transform us, it might alter us. Drugs, intoxicants can bring about an alteration of experience, an alteration of consciousness but it's a temporary alteration it's not a transformation. I think it's helpful to understand the difference between alteration and, and transformation. So what conduces with transformation of our being the Buddha was encouraging with mindfulness, heedfulness presence, clarity of mind. And so those things that take us in the opposite direction, that bring about heedlessness, loss of clarity, loss of heedfulness, uh, to be avoided. And so, steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, you know, recognizing the the need for restraint, and the opposite, to move away from things that, that are uh, indulgence and heedlessness. One of the things about restraint that is often not understood is that uh, it's about energy. Sometimes you talk about restraint and, and, and it can sound like it's, it's a, 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 some sort of moral you know, don't do this or else. You know, good people do this and, and Victorian values and, and repression and out of unawareness and so on. But restraint or sangwara in Pali that is, is the containment of our energy so that we have all well our energy available to us. If, if every time a beautiful object arises our attention goes out and follows it so I've got to have that, well that's actually very irritating. That's very irritating to always be wanting things. Even if you can get them all yeah. after a while I mean, you've got, you've had everything and so what? Still not happy. Mm. Or if every time something ugly arises yeah. some unpleasant object, we get angry, get indignant. If our passions are not contained, then we are, as Buddhists speak, enslaved to the world, because there's always going to be beautiful and lovely things around. Some really nice fragrances and some really disgusting smells. Really foul smells. As all my other senses start to fade, my olfactory consciousness seems to get stronger and stronger. And I, the future doesn't look very good unless I get more wise, that is. The world becomes a stinkier place as I get older. Can't see so well, can't hear so much, don't taste very well. <laughs> but I'm sure there's one thing smell. <laughs> and if we, don't, uh, if we don't know how to restrain ourselves, then when something agreeable comes up, oh, that's good, we go towards it. Or something disagreeable comes up, well, that's disgusting. And so we're always being turned on and turned off by the world. And it's really tedious, and very tiring. Our energy, basically, it's like dealing with a wild animal. It's like holding on to a wild Rottweiler. You know, Ajahn Chantapala's got this dog in the monastery in Italy that walked into the monastery one day. I don't know what it is. It's a, I'm sure it's got Rottweiler in it. It's a monstrous thing and it's so powerful. You have to take it out for walks twice a day and and uh, it's an extraordinary feat to kept, have this thing on the lead and it's just this massive bundle of muscle that's so powerful and and, uh, and it's exhausting, you get back and you say, oh, my God, that was a workout Chantapala is very fit as a result of taking this thing out every day Well it can be like that if our passions are not restrained if we don't understand the principle of restraining our our preferences, our likes and our dislikes it's like, It's like dealing with a wild animal all the time. It's very exhausting. But the result of training, the result of disciplining ourselves, not moral injunctions about how we should or shouldn't feel and should and shouldn't do, but out of an appreciation for how the nature of the heart, the nature of the passions, and how if we want to move towards freedom, if we want to realise those things that we aspire towards, well then we need this restraint, this containment. Our energy is not always leaking out. And with our own experience it can be like that. We're also being around other people. If you, you know, People who are always gushing all over the place. It's, you know, even positive gushing is a bit tedious after a while. Whereas to be around somebody who's restrained, composed. Not repressed, that's different. But maybe because we have experienced the um, unpleasantness of, of neurotic repression, Either within ourselves or in the company of others we, we can we can miss here the encouragement about cultivating restraint so this is uh, I think that's probably enough on that verse uh, for this evening and now there's these questions here we have one question that says in what can we trust and the second question the teachings about not self seem to me to be pretty crucial could you say something about how we can Approach not self in a meaningful way. And this third question, which is very long. Can you please explain what is meant by people referring to Buddhism as an atheistic belief? E.g. no God, Allah, Divine, Creator, Maker, Prince, Supreme. Is this true or is such a belief a more personal matter? E.g., Buddhists may believe they belong to the supreme, but refuse to label such a high being. Uh, obviously, each of these questions is some um, pretty major subject, and uh, I'll just try and say something a little bit about each of them. This last one: there, Can you please say something about what's meant when people refer to Buddhism as an atheistic belief? Um, well there may be people who say that it's an atheistic belief, but that's not, that's not really the Buddha's teaching. Again, what the Buddha was talking about was the cultivation of mindfulness. Mindfulness that leads to understanding. And mindfulness is also mindfulness applied, as it said, heedfulness with regards to all things that arise. Now that includes heedfulness with regards to beliefs. Being mindful of what we believe in and what we disbelieve in. What the Buddha did say was that he used the, uh, the cosmology that was around at the time and did talk about different realms of existence gods, very very high, supreme gods supreme in the sense that they think they're supreme and, uh, and then there's, there's lower realms of gods and then there's earthbound angels and celestial beings like fairies and and, and, and all these things that dance all over the place and have a nice time and then there are, are lower realms like animal realms and, and then Hell realms, hungry ghost realms, and, and horrible, horrible hell realms. And you can see some of these depicted in that painting down the back. So he used this this uh, this sort of language at the time. He was around 2,500 years ago. But what he was talking about, what he did say, was that all of these realms, all beings and all these realms, like all conditions, are impermanent. And that's that's the bottom line. That's the thing to to uh, appreciate with the Buddhist teaching, that that whatever exists... Whatever has been born dies. Whatever is manifest will disintegrate. There is nothing that he found, or that any of us will find, although he doesn't encourage us to believe in this, he encourages us to investigate. And see, can you find anything? Can you find anything that doesn't disintegrate? Anything that doesn't end? Anything that doesn't change? Can you find anything that doesn't change? Now some of these gods, he pointed out, have been up there for so long, they think they're permanent. I think they think they're ultimate, but uh, from his perspective, he says nothing's ultimate. There is no thing that is ultimate. No thing can be ultimate. Everything's born, dies. Now, so when people say that Buddhism is an atheistic belief, it's uh, it's not an atheistic belief because it does accept the possibility of theos of gods, but it doesn't hold gods to be ultimate. And it doesn't also, needs to be said early on in this that it doesn't. It doesn't give emphasis to the discussion about the existence or non-existence of gods. Whether gods exist or don't exist is not the main point. That's, that's, that's been, that's made very clearly. He did, as I said, refer to the existence of gods on various levels, but they're not in charge, they're not running the show. And the way the story goes is that when their good karma runs out, well they'll get reborn in a lower realm as well. And that's how it works. And so there's talk of the transmigration through all the realms of existence, going up and down and round and round. But spiritual practice and what Buddhists hold to, not as a mere belief, not as a as a fixed position. We don't hold to anything as fixed positions, but what we hold to as functional beliefs, trust in, and this is this relates to this other question, what can we trust in? We trust in the principle that it is It is possible for human beings to realize, to come to see for ourselves, to know directly reality. If we exercise right mindfulness, right contemplation, right restraint and other conditions, then it is possible to bring about a transformation of consciousness, a refinement of awareness, a purification of awareness, whereby our awareness is no longer functioning in its polluted state, polluted by all the attachment to our conditioning. We trust that this is possible. And so it's not trusting in a a being out there uh, that's running things. This is what pretty well everybody, it seems, believed up until the Buddha arrived, believed that we were all victims to external circumstances. But the Buddha's realisation was that we're not victims, but actually we are the authors of our own lives. Through the choices that we make, through the choices that we make, conscious and unconscious choices, we create our lives. Through the choices that we make, we we perform karma, we perform effort, action, that's got direct results. And So the encouragement is to perform wholesome actions, to avoid unwholesome actions, so as to free our awareness from distortions so that the insight, the understanding, the seeing clearly can arise so that we come to know for ourselves. And he said, that's much better than what the gods can do. Because the gods often, as far as he was concerned, are very deluded. They have all sorts of strange ideas about reality. A lot of the celestial realms apparently are these beings who have created lots of good karma, lots of wholesome causes, and they got reborn in really refined, subtle realms and they're just cruising around having a lovely, lovely time. And, but it's only a matter of time until that good karma runs out, and you know they're coming down. And it's like a rich kid. you know They inherit daddy's money and, and buy a Porsche and you know, just go around snorting coke and having a good time until, um, you know, they get caught by the police or, or they, they, you know, you overuse their credit card or whatever and then they go down. And, uh, perhaps it's not as dramatic as that, perhaps it's a little less painful, but that's the general image. Not using the benefits of past good karma to create wisdom, to generate wisdom. So throughout the Buddha's teaching is an encouragement to have faith in the principle that realization is possible. The Buddha was free through the effort that he made. He removed the distortions that are, are ignorance, the habits of ignoring reality in our minds, in our hearts. And so little by little the heart opens, the mind clarifies and we see, we start to see in new ways. Aha! It's like that. And when there's a seeing, when there's a clear seeing, then there's a letting go. And so in the beginning we have faith in this principle. We hear the teaching that it is possible to be free from suffering. That suffering is not is a result of some external agent. We're not victims to our faith. There is something we can do about it. And so we do what we can do. We regenerate we wholesome causes. We exercise restraint. We exercise uh, morality. We exercise, exercise concentration and mindfulness. And until... And until the ingredients come together, when the ingredients, when the conditions all come together, then a, it's like you know those experiments used to do in school in the laboratory. You put enough of a of a chemical into water until crystallization takes place. And when crystallization takes place, you've got a whole different a whole different experience, a whole different reality. So for a lot of us, for a lot of the time, we're oper- operating on faith. We trust the Buddha's teachings. And though it might be tempting to not be so restrained, it might be tempting to do this or that, actually that's not what's encouraged. And so we exercise restraint out of faith until there's enough energy generated and then something drops. And then we see for ourselves. And then the faith is verified faith. So there's questions of what can we trust in it's not trusting in a God or not trusting in an external agent of any sort. It's not denying these things exist. It's, basically you can quite, it's quite okay as a Buddhist to say, I don't know whether these things exist or not. So sometimes people get caught up in, in the whole question of what does it mean to be a Buddhist. Several times over the last week this has come up and people have commented to me oh, I'm not sure about calling myself a Buddhist because they don't want to take on a label. And, uh, and that's, that's also understandable, because probably some of us have suffered from being labelled or seeing other people hiding behind labels, and and so labels, if we hold them in the wrong way, uh, can cause problems. But if there's no labels, well that's also a problem. You, you go into the supermarket and there's no labels on anything, you can end up buying all sorts of junk. So labels have got their place, conventions have got their place. And Buddhism also has got its conventions. But it's how we hold these. If we hold them to them mindfully, and this is what we trust in, if we hold them mindfully, well then we can have an appropriate relationship. Like some people are afraid to call themselves Buddhists. I, I want to say some people. I myself was afraid to call myself a Buddhist for many years, even when I was a monk. <laughs> Getting around looking like this, and say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> Yeah. And a Theravadan Buddhist, I don't know if I want to be a Theravadan Buddhist, yeah. I'm keeping 227 precepts, so I'm doing all the things Theravadan Buddhists do, but I was one of those people who had uh, had a bit of pain from, from being labelled and so on, and hiding behind labels, and wasn't keen to take up another one. But with mindfulness, if we mindfully reflect on how we relate to conventions, well, it doesn't have to be a problem, we just don't expect too much from conventions. As somebody was saying the other day to me that how they believe in what the Buddha taught and they meditate and they do everything the Buddha said but they're not going to bow to the Buddha image and do all this chanting business because it's just not relevant as far as I was saying. Well, that's alright. You don't have to do these things. You know, if you don't want to do them, you don't have to do them. But there is something in it. These are like, the, again, they're like, they're like part of Buddhism. They're part of the convention of Buddhism. And if it wasn't for some of these conventions then we probably wouldn't have the Dhamma. We wouldn't have these teachings. These teachings have been supported and and carried down through generations, two and a half thousand years. We're very fortunate, very grateful for that. The conventions are not the point, but we relate to the conventions, mindfully. And if we relate to conventions, well then we don't invest too much energy in them. Like this Buddha image here. I think it's a very beautiful Buddha image, but it's not the most important thing in the world. Something like those Buddha images in Bamiyan that got destroyed. It was was very unfortunate. Those heedless Taliban fellows blew them up. They didn't know what they were doing. But that's not the end of the world. We don't have to get upset about it. Mm -hmm. If we understand, if we relate mindfully to these things, well then we can appreciate their function. Uh, Personally, I like, I really like these days bound to Buddha images. I find it inspires me to... You know, the, I know that the Greeks were the ones that introduced them. The Greeks introduced the first Buddha images. I think it was about 500 years after the Buddha had already died. And Afghanistan was very Buddhist. And when the Greeks came along and reached an area there, it was called the Gandhara. Gandhara Buddhas, you'll see them. They've got top knots and togas that look like Greek gods. You'll see them in the V&A Museum in London. Up until that point, what the Buddha had encouraged was the empty seat, the wheel, the Bodhi tree, the footprint, and the, stu- uh, and the stupa. Is that right? Yeah, I think that was the five things that the Buddha had, had uh, suggested as objects of veneration and remembering the teacher. He certainly didn't recommend the Buddha image. But this is what we've got. and it's, Buddhists have been bowing to these images for you know, 2,000 years at least. And So personally, I find it quite inspiring. But if you don't like it, you don't have to bow. It doesn't really matter. I have this uh, this good friend who, when he, he related to me, what happened when he first started coming to the monasteries, he'd been a Buddhist for a while, he was, he was on the continent, the continent of Europe, and hadn't had much to do with other Buddhists, and, but he'd been practicing and studying for a while, and then he came over here to his first Buddhist monasteries, actually was to Amaravati, and uh, I think it was during the winter retreat, and he saw all these monks and nuns doing all the bowing and endless chanting and carrying on, and he thought he was coming on a meditation retreat. And it drove him spare. He was really you know, quite fed up with it. I, I wasn't there at the time, I didn't see him, but he was probably you know, sitting there upright and refusing to bow through the whole two or three months of the retreat. And Anyway, he survived okay and then left and went back to his country. And, but then then he related how he was practicing back in this nice little small flat that he had and, and there was an apartment there. It wasn't a very big place, but uh, it was good enough. But... To get to sit, he had to used to in the evening when the wife and kids went to bed, he'd go and sit in the kitchen, and he'd sit meditation in the kitchen. It was the only place he could be quiet and on his own, and that was fine. But after a while, he noticed there was something missing. And he says, you know, sitting's fine, but you know there was something that he felt in the monastery that he didn't feel there. And then he started to occur to him, well, maybe, maybe there's something in the bowing business after all. And so he started bowing to the refrigerator. (laughs) And then he got back into it again. (laughs) And he really got off on bowing to the refrigerator and his whole practice came alive. (laughs) Now, you know, it's not because the refrigerator is particularly holy or or the buddhams is particularly holy. But the convention, the convention has got a function. And our rational mind doesn't necessarily understand this. The way things appear to be is one thing. The way things actually are is something else. Another image that I often give when talking about this is, is like what, what happens if you go to the supermarket and you've got to buy all these things, you know, you buy your sunflower seeds and your peanuts and your tahini and your jars of honey and your chocolate bars and all the things that I like. <laughs> I'm to think of something else, you know, something, yeah, leg of lamb or whatever. <laughs> you buy all these things and you're going out to the car, but you won't use a trolley because, you know... Trolleys, you don't like trolleys, you don't like, you know, you're not going to buy a trolley, you're just going to buy these things. Well somebody else just uses a trolley, there's no problem, you go and put everything in a trolley and wheel a trolley out to the car. It's much easier that way. Somebody comes up and says, what do you buy that trolley for? I mean, what are you doing buying a trolley? I say, well I didn't buy a trolley. You know you didn't buy the trolley. Mm. To somebody else it looks like you bought a trolley. Well that's their perception. Well it's likewise with a lot of the conventions of religion. This is not what we believe in. This is not what we trust in. Buddhism is not what we believe in. Not what we disbelieve in. But being mindful of these conventions as we inherit them, here we are in the 21st century, and thank goodness we've, and thank goodness, not thank God, but thank goodness we've inherited these teachings that have come down to us. Thank goodness and thank wisdom and compassion that we've inherited these teachings. And there are some conventions that go with them. The container that has carried this through the generations and with respect and with mindfulness we relate to these things. And if we relate to them with mindfulness, well then we can have an appropriate relationship. Yeah, it's just the same as if you're chopping food in the kitchen. Or you the other day these guys were down there laying carpet in the retreat house and they've got these amazingly sharp knives that just slash through the carpet all over the place. Wang bang with their staple guns and slashing and cutting and the, the speed that they move in it's frightening. And, and uh, one of the carpet lads was showing me where he slashed his hand with his, his uh, especially sharp Stanley knife. And That was when he was new on the job, he only did it once. He wasn't mindful, he wasn't having a mindful relationship with the knife. That's what happens if you're chopping the vegetables in the kitchen. Or but if, These guys didn't talk to each other while they worked and they didn't have the radio playing, they were very careful. If you're using dangerous tools, you can't be having a casual conversation or cracking jokes. Why? Because you need to have a mindful relationship with what you're doing, otherwise you get hurt. As it is on the outside, well so it is on the inside. That we need to have a mindful relationship with our own hearts, with our own minds, with our own bodies, with our own being. And if we cultivate this mindfulness in association with wise reflection, with careful consideration, then we can trust and we can have faith that it will bring about the result the Buddha was talking about. So, in response to this question of what can we trust, I right? say so we can trust in mindfulness and wisdom. Sati that's what we can trust in. And ultimately that's what the Buddha is. People say, well what's the Buddha? Well yes, there's the historic Buddha, who lived 2,500 years ago in somewhere near Nepal and northeast India. And um, But there's also the consciousness of the Buddha, which, as he described as consciousness, it was completely free from ignorance. It was uninterrupted, unobstructed awareness, edgeless awareness, completely free from the delusions that we suffer from, that is, that I am my conditioning. I am my likes and dislikes. I am my preferences. The Buddha didn't have any of that. Through the kind of effort that he made, he managed to realise the potential that we all have. And so when I say, I go for refuge to the Buddha... That's what I'm going to refer to, that's what I trust in, satipanya. So, just getting back to this question about, uh, is it true that some Buddhists believe, or that such a belief is a personal matter? Well, if somebody has been conditioned to believe in a god, and it's a strong belief, well, a Buddhist approach would be, well, don't reject it, look at your belief, study the belief, see what it's based on, see what it's conditioned by We don't have to disbelieve in something just because some teacher told us we should. That would be going against the Buddhist teachings. Rather, it's more appropriate to look at our beliefs in just the same way as we look at the tools that we hold. Hold them lightly, hold them carefully. And Then when we have an appropriate relationship to well, then they can serve us well. Probably you'll find that such a belief will fade away. But that's up to you. And this last question, I still have a few minutes, I think. The teaching about (laughs) not-self, which you can't really deal with in a few minutes, but seems to me pretty crucial. Could you say something about how we can approach not-self in a meaningful way? I think it's very, very important to appreciate when the Buddha was talking about not-self, this is not a philosophical position to take about reality. And we respect and admire the Buddha's teachings and so we can, if, we, if we're not heedful, if we're not mindful, if we're not careful, just grasp them. And uh, so the Buddha said, Anattā is the truth. All things are Anattā. Sabbe dhammā anattāti yadhā pānyā yapasati attā libhinda duke esā Mago govesudhiyā. The last line, esā Mago govesudhiyā. This is the path of purification, to see that all dhammas, all phenomena, all phenomena, conditioned and unconditioned phenomena, is anatta. is not self. So you read that and you hear that. Yadha Panyayapasati, and Seeing this with wisdom is the path of freedom. So we've got to see. So well, we may not go about that cultivating the right seeing. We might just grasp it as an idea. And I think we need to be very, very careful about that, because as far as we're concerned, well, I don't know speak about you, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm here. This is me. I don't have any doubts about my being here, sitting in front of this microphone looking at you. I don't feel like I'm you out there looking here. This is me. And the chances are, if you say something nice to me, I will feel good. And if you say something really rude and unpleasant, the chances are, I will feel not good. And when I feel not good, it's very different from when I feel good. And that's me. That's definitely me. And so the Buddha didn't teach Anatta as a way of trying to override or dismiss this experience of meanness. In fact, earlier on in this, this, um, the great teaching on great blessings, and the Buddha did talk of this, there's, there's a verse that says, oneself rightly directed, I forget which verse it is, oneself rightly directed, um, oneself rightly guided, facing in the right <coughs> direction, oneself, atta, he used the word atta, oneself rightly guided, this, we have to work with the self, this feeling of me. There is a feeling of me, but he said, if you're mindful, if you're careful about this feeling of me, you'll see this feeling of me is not what it looks like. We don't dismiss the feeling of me like the thing. We don't dismiss our beliefs or our disbeliefs. We examine them, and so this feeling of me comes up, and I feel happy. We do We don't. Dismiss it or slam it down with some Buddhist belief, like, I don't exist, everything's anatta. I look at it. I am happy. Well, who is this I? What does this I feel like? Getting to know ourselves. Because there's many selves. There's not just one self, there's many selves. I don't know about you, but the self that I experience when I first get out of the bed in the morning is a very different self. <coughs> from the one at about five o'clock in the afternoon. Five o'clock in the afternoon, I'm usually a very agreeable self. If you want to see me, that's the time to come and see me. Not at five o'clock in the morning. You find a very different self. I'm, I'm sure all of us have some experiences where you get angry. I am angry. It's usually not the sort of I that you want to promote. But it definitely feels like me, doesn't it? If I get angry, it feels like me. Or if I'm afraid, it feels like me. I'm afraid. It's not like I've been under this afraid, it's me. And there are consequences when I'm afraid, or if I'm happy, there are consequences. So the encouragement is to be mindful of this experience of Atta, of me. But mindful in a way whereby we're not taking a fixed position. It can be so convincing, this feeling of me. So convincing, again an image that you've probably heard me give many times is like if you're crossing a desert and you're thirsty, And you see this shimmering in the distance. And you think, oh, at last, water. And so, based on your belief that it's water, you run to it, feeling sure that your thirst is going to be quenched. And you expect that when you get there, this ordeal is all going to be over. But you run and you run and you run and you run, and all you get is disappointed, disappointed, disappointed. Until you get the message, oh, right. That's the way the perceptual realm works. When there's this here, this here, It looks like water, but it's not water. Aha, understanding liberates us. It really looks like water. It really does, if you've been out in the desert and you've seen it. It really looks like water, and I'm really thirsty, and I really want to drink, but that's not going to do it. Well, likewise, the feeling of self, the feeling of me, really feels like a substantial somebody. really feels like me. When I'm angry, it really feels like a substantial certain me when I'm full of love and light and I feel like I am really great, aha, be careful. That's what it was, be careful, be mindful, be heedful in all things that arise. To watch them, what is that me? It feels at the time, but somehow or other, just a few hours ago, it didn't feel that way. So maybe this me is not the way it appears like. In fact, what we start to see is this me is a very, very complex business. And very Interesting. So we wouldn't want to dismiss atta, we wouldn't want to dismiss self, conventional self. It's too interesting, and too complex, and actually too dangerous to dismiss it. What would be more appropriate if we followed the Buddha's teaching would be to investigate the sense of self with mindfulness, to appreciate, and to kind of what does it mean to be rightly directed, oneself rightly directed. That's interesting. And if we are mindful of that, well then, the teachings on Anatta take on a different meaning. We're not trying to prove the truth of Anatta, but rather we're starting to open up to that reality and say, well, the self, the self is not really so certain after all. Maybe the self is not self. It's not a solid substantial thing. So those are just a few hints anyway on, on maybe one possible way of, of considering the Buddha's teachings on not self. So once again, thank you very much this evening for your good questions. I hope this is going to support you in your own contemplations